You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast. everybody, welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Joining me today on this episode and probably another episode after this is one of our guests from earlier this summer, Fred Rutger, a retired U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service pilot biologist. Those of you that listen to the podcast will, will remember that we connected with Fred while he was on location up in northern Alberta, I believe it was, conducting the breeding population survey this year. We'll get into a little bit of that, but Fred has many, many stories and experiences about his time as a pilot biologist flying all across North America and looking at all sorts of waterfowl habitats. And we thought it'd be fantastic to get Fred on a couple of episodes here and tell us about some of the neat stories that he's collected over the years. So that's what we got for you here today. Hope you enjoy it. Fred, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to be here. You know, Fred, the other thing that I'll tell our audience here, if they hear any sirens in the background, ambulance, police, <laughs> fire department, whatever, or any other kind of weird noises that you normally don't hear on these episodes. It's because we're in New Orleans at our national convention. It is, what, mid-July. It is quite warm outside. We are inside recording this, but yes, yeah, still a few random noises from all the activity that's going on around here. So if you hear that, that's just part of the experience here with us. Fred, for those that may not have caught that earlier episode I want to start with you kind of giving a bit of a background on your history in the waterfowl management field, how you came to be a Fish and Wildlife Service pilot biologist, uh, where you where you worked, you know, where you were stationed along that time. But let's go back even farther than that, kind of for my own benefit. I don't know a whole lot about your personal life prior to you coming to the Fish and Wildlife Service. Where'd you grow up? And then how did you become a Fish and Wildlife Service pilot biologist? I grew up uh, 30 miles to the east of Havana, Illinois. Got to know Frank Bellrose back in the day when I thought that's that's what a waterfowl biologist is. I was blessed with some of that. Uh, a friend of mine, Vic Hammer, who went on to be a site manager in Illinois in a waterfowl area. But the two of us grew in, growing up in a small town of 500 people. As seniors, about juniors, seniors in high school, we went down to the state fair in Springfield, and low in the conservation building was always a draw. And uh, they, George Arthur, a famous state biologist and, and he was my first mentor. But anyway, George was working the uh, booth that day in the conservation. And he kind of had a reputation, a couple of kids, you know, like, you know, 
how, how you doing, all that. But we walked up, and he said, where are you kids from? We said, Emden, Emden, Illinois. And it was, uh, back in the day, it was famous for its pheasant hunting. I mean, it's no commercial or anything, but just people knew that that, that was in the heart of the, the pheasant range. And he, so that that was automatically our, our are kind of in. But as we talked, and he said, you guys hunt dough? Oh, yes, sir. And we asked him, we understand we're going to get the point system this year. And he said, really, you guys know about that. Two kids from Emden. And anyway, in the next breath or two, he said, hey, you guys like to go to Saskatchewan and ban ducks for us? <laughs> I wouldn't be here start talking to you had that conversation not took Amazing. place. But that, that set the key, and, and to jump ahead to your question, um, I, I, we were lucky to band with flyway biologists, and that's where I first met Art Brazda, the first airplane ride, a service airplane, going into the bush to band in the boreal forest. So that's how it all got started. And when did you start with the Fish and Wildlife Service? In 84. 84. You were stationed where? Uh, in out to uh, Patuxent. I was living in, in Illinois on the Mississippi River to Kwok, Illinois, with the Illinois Department of Conservation with the waterfowl program there. And then uh, when I, I kind of waited for that job and, and when an opportunity came, um, we moved to out to, the, out to Patuxent and, um, and I found a place to live over on the eastern shore and spent two years there. We've had other people on the podcast talking about their experience, their what, their moment of revelation where they realized that, hey, I could have a career in waterfowl ecology or waterfowl management, but a pilot biologist, when did you kind of put that together in that not only could you have a career in wildlife, waterfowl management, but that you could pair it up with being a pilot. Did, were you interested in aviation prior to kind of coming to the Fish and Wildlife Service? How did all that develop? Not till I rode in that De Havilland Beaver with Art Brest on a banding assignment. We, we had banded, Vic and I had banded a couple years after that first year. They hired us back all the way through college to come every summer. So um, about the second year of that, they, uh, Mort Smith, Morton Smith, Louisiana native, who was head of the program at that time, they were scrambling at the end of the, typically banding, you know, the, the, it gets better as, as the month drags on. We're talking summer banding here in August, but as the weather starts to cool off, and sometimes if it's been hot, the ducks are, don't come to the bait, and you get that last little push. And Art Brazda was banding at a place called Swan Lake, north of the Range. And um, anyway, uh, uh, Mort came down in the 180 where we were banding at Last Mountain Lake, and he said, we got a proposal for you guys. Do you want to go back to school right away, or could you miss two or three days and go help us up in the boreal forest? And uh, he said, I'll fly you in, in in our 180, and then you'll be with Brazda and the beaver, and that's where it all got started. But now you weren't you weren't a, an employee, Fish and Wildlife Service. No, that, I was that still was, you were still a teenager. Still a junior. No, this is I was junior in college. Okay, and um, uh, that and I came back and enrolled at Southern Illinois University. And this this don't even sound correct anymore. But for six hundred dollars, you could get your <laughs> private pilot's license through the university. Okay. So Doc Klimstra was my advisor oh, back yeah. then. So Klimstra said. 
you better go for that. Yeah. He knew I wasn't graduate school material. <laughs> anyway, but instead, he, he, he the quote, I think to quote Doc, he said, you know, you, you found your niche. You yeah. know, you could go on to graduate school, but this looks like it'll pay off in the end. I encourage you to go that direction. It's all worked out. Fred, that's a great point, just sort of for, uh, I, I guess, tangential uh, discussion here, and, or just to mention Finding your niche is so important. There's not necessarily the right, you know, there's not necessarily a single path that a person takes to be a successful contributor to the waterfowl wildlife management field. Um, I don't know that I would say that you wouldn't have been graduate material, but the point is that there's more than one route to become a successful waterfowl manager, wildlife manager, than through, let's just say, grad school or uh, whether it be master's or PhD, whatever. I mean, and this is a great example of that. It is a incredibly important role within uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service within all of our natural resource agencies and the role of aviation in those. And I think that's just a good, uh, good point to make that finding your niche However, the path is that you got there is really, really important, and and you certainly found yours, and you were a tremendous contributor. And I will also extend the, those remarks. All of your comrades, all of your fellow aviators, your fellow pilots through the years, we have an opportunity here. You and I are friends. You're here in New Orleans, and you're a great storyteller too. I know a lot of your other friends are great storytellers as well. But this is a great opportunity for us to connect with someone like yourself and to share some of the stories that all of your pilot colleagues uh, in the Fish and Wildlife Service and elsewhere could also share. And so I try to do that is just kind of pay homage, pay respects to everybody else that you're kind of representing in this conversation and all the work that you're doing. So, you know, with with that kind of being said, I I guess I wanted to to move on and, and sort of talk about some of your first times as as a pilot, you got your pilot license, went to work for the service. What were you doing right out of the gate? Were you on waterfowl surveys from the very start? The the uh, the program had uh, had was reduced some with retirees and and people doing it. anyway. Uh, when when I got hired, I hired Jim Walter from Arkansas. He was the waterfowl biologist in Arkansas, no stranger at all to the duck world, and he had been flying a few surveys there. I wasn't in an aviation position with Illinois, but I, w- I was in the waterfowl program in Illinois and doing some hobby flying. i got to tell this story real yeah, quick. Don yeah. Roosh, Don Roosh, legendary goose biologist. Before, um, I, after, after the banding um, that we talked about, I was still floating around a- after... Uh, uh, undergrad, and I was I was doing some aviation work, flying for some aerial photo companies and whatnot. But um, uh, I was still banding geese for the state of Illinois, special out of wintertime banding and on living on Union County Refuge in Southern Illinois. But the fly, Mississippi Flyway Tech meeting was in Evansville, Indiana, and I, I as a technician, um, went up with George Arthur and the others that were. Uh, and anyway, I met Don for the first time. I've sat in on a Mississippi Valley population of Canada geese. The EPP is out in Missouri, yeah. Iowa. But anyway, Don, I was sat in a, in one of his meetings, and, and he was the famous researcher up on, on uh, Hudson Bay Coast near Churchill. And I'm sitting there in that meeting. He said, boy, what we wouldn't give to have an airplane in camp. The, the commercial operators, um, the smallest thing they got is a single otter. It costs a lot of money. We don't need that much airplane. We like to survey geese. 
uh, we'll do some surveys almost weekly and we're just getting our stuff back and forth and so it really cripples us so after the meeting I almost ran to him and I said look Don I'm, I'm you know introduce myself I, I got about this much time few hundred you know six seven hundred hours um, what can we can he said let's go have coffee and uh, <laughs> anyway that that led to a lot of uh, decisions have been made over a cup of coffee or or a glass of beer oh, that's but, true <laughs> <laughs> but anyway uh, uh, it all came together and I found myself with a Cessna 150 we modified it's a two-place airplane it's a trainer and uh, not really quite the bush plane but it was adequate to do what we needed to do up there to head we didn't have to go far working in a limited area out there on the Hudson Bay coast but um, it uh, that was a big jump in my career to, to kind of set the stage to get the flyaway biologist job and so then from Patuxent when did you when did you come to Lafayette was that your next stop or was there somewhere intermediate in between there no uh, all these other things happened prior to being hired by uh, fish and wildlife in, in a permanent position flying and so they, uh, Jim Walter and I came to work out at Patuxent, um, and um, I was there two years and moved to Lafayette. Okay, so then you were in Lafayette for the majority of your career, and you were going to get into a lot of the waterfowl discussion here in just a moment. Was there, because I know that's, I think, that's where you spent the majority of your time was on waterfowl surveys. Is that fair? Yeah, uh, that, that's the, this is the uh, migratory bird program. Okay. Yeah. And there was, at the end, there was some seabird stuff. I mean, there's still waterfowl, but uh, actually the seabird stuff was some uh, uh, for uh, – Wind energy on the East Coast, and and uh, but but ninety plus percent of it was pure ducks and geese. Yeah, and they're still doing some of those surveys in the Gulf and along the Atlantic Coast associated with some of that wind energy question, right? I think some of the folks right. I forget what we call that. Um, but anyway, they're still flying some of those areas. Yeah, so AMAPS. That's, that's uh, I can't it. I can't yeah, call the, like the whole you know, acronym now, but that's it. So the other the other night, I guess it was last night, we were out at dinner and we were kind of going around the table doing introductions and got to you and you introduced yourself as a pilot biologist, retired pilot biologist, and uh, a few other things. And then Dr. Tom Mormon, our former chief scientist, chimed in and added that you have probably seen more waterfowl habitat across North America than than any other person. Um, I can't say necessarily <laughs> any other person on, on, on the continent because there's a whole there's a group of people that fall into the category that exactly. you're in yeah. in terms of the, those pilot biologists that have flown waterfowl habitats from the Arctic all the way down through Mexico. But certainly more waterfowl habitats than anybody that's at this national convention right now. I feel pretty safe saying that, and given the the, the scale that you've the, the, the places and length of time over which you've done, there's just no doubt about that. So I want you to tell us, talk some stories here. I don't know if you're going to have this. I should have uh, I should have asked it beforehand so that you could do a little bit of mental math. Do you have any idea how many miles you have flown uh, doing your waterfowl surveys over the years? Yeah, I worked that up one time for, uh, for the uh, uh, air venture at at, uh, we used to display our uh, aircraft at the uh, the, the biggest uh, aviation oh, yeah. convention, Oshkosh Air Venture in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Uh, one of the best uh, PR events I ever worked back was when duck 
what was it the prior to the the great outdoors expo but it was on the airport we could bring the airplane in and uh you know it it was really good interface with all the duck hunters and and uh so but but going forward from that we actually showed the aircraft in a in a conservation role to that was our deal back when we were doing the air air show um or, or the displaying our aircraft at uh, some of the aviation things and that tied into the 50th anniversary of this whole program so along those lines uh, um, and I, I, the numbers are escaping me now but it's that there's about 80,000 miles of of um, linear miles in the in the BPOP survey the breeding habitat survey it's total okay yeah so uh, there's about eight of us most years that, that are doing those surveys, plus two guys in Alaska, guys and gals. And uh, but when you divide all that up, when you do the math, I, I, we we I figured out how many surveys it would take to get to the moon and back. But that escapes me now. <laughs> <laughs> but if, so if I were to do the quick math, there you said eighty thousand miles. You had about ten crews, uh, so that's ten thousand miles of crew. Doing that right. Something that, like that. Yeah, that's, 80, that may, it might, that might be a little So, th- so 300,000 miles, something like that. And then, of course, you did a lot of other surveys as well. I, knew you, I know you flew the Redhead surveys down along the Gulf Coast for a number of years. You flew the Midwinter surveys as well, right? And you probably were involved in some research along the way as well. So probably getting close to half a million miles. Does that sound fair? Probably, yeah, yeah. yeah it's got to be getting close to that, and and you didn't get a single frequent flyer mile for that. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd leave the airplane here and there, and ride ride the airlines back and forth. But. I was mentioning to somebody that I was going to ask you that question, and they said, "Well, the, the follow up question that you need to ask is that if you were to take every fish that you caught during your downtime <laughs> across all those years and line them up, you know." Uh, uh, front to back how long would that line be so and that's that there is some truth to that in terms of of what you do in your downtime and some of where you are up in those remote locations we're going to talk about that you know and you're in the boreal forest of canada you're in a float plane you have to find a place to land and where is it it's a lake and what's there you have to have a place to stay and it's a lodge and you have to take some time off so what's any outdoors person going to do they're going to do a little bit of fishing. The There's outfitter, that. the outfitters were really good to us over the years, and and it made a lot of sense. Uh, instead of flying, and when you're working in the boreal forest, the towns are in, in the gas pumps are a long way apart. And uh, we'd fuel in the middle of the day and then go out and fly again. I figured it up uh, just before this podcast. I think there was one year that we at the end of the survey, the farthest we ever ferried for lodging was 17 miles off the survey line. Oh, wow. And we had camped sometimes on the survey line. I saw a, a Sandy Point one time. I said, there's got to be pickerel right there. Yeah. Walleye for... <laughs> uh, so you developed search images but anyway, we we ducks, but we, we, we said we had planned the camp that night anyway, and I'd been watching. And I said, this is our spot. And we healed the airplane in, and then we continued to camp there. The, the hunch was right. And we continued to camp there for four or five years after that. But, but back to... Uh, staying with with uh, lodges and outfitters uh, the deal is if you went to the end of the line ferried to town uh, a lot of times let's use Kenora in Ontario for an example the airport's quite a little ride into town wait for the cab pay the cab fare go into town check in walk around to get a meal whatever when you're 17 miles or less from a guy's dock 
we land a float plane. They're glad to see us. We're glad to see them. It, it kind of they called us the moccasin telegraph. Uh, the uh, uh, they said, "Hey, were you guys?" After we got to know the people a year or two. Where'd you just come out of? Where, did you stay with our buddies down at such and such a lake? Yeah, we we heard uh, heard heard they bought a uh, you know some new boats this year, and so we it was all fun to uh, compare notes with everybody. your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. bit of the background there. I think what I want to do now is uh, get into some some favorite memories, give people a flavor of some of the things that you did, some of the things that you saw, uh, what you looked forward to every year whenever you were going up there because you did these, you flew these surveys. You were one of the one of those eight pilots. No, what did you say? Eight to ten. Eight it to depends ten, on a year. Uh, pilots in those crews that that went up there every year, flew these surveys counted ducks you counted ducks as you were also piloting and you're going at uh, for those that that don't remember it's like you're what 120 150 feet yeah, above 100 the, above to ground. 150 but 150 is our target and looking out the side of the plane uh, counting ducks and so you did this every year for 30 years or so and it's something that i'm certain you look forward to every year do you miss it I, mean, I do, you, do. You, you, I, did it. you were the observer this year, so that's one yeah. Thing we'll so say. it was great to be back in the airplane on the right side as an observer, and uh, but yes, uh, it's just it's like. What do you miss most? Oh, it went as hot down here in Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I'm brand, I told some, I told somebody one day the first year after I retired, I was on Lardo Lake trying to catch soccer. <laughs> and um, um, and uh, and this guy got to talking, and he said, "What'd you do for a live? retired?" Uh, he had just retired, and I told him, and I said, "Yeah, I gave up a turbine airplane and go travel in the continent to uh, sit here and watch this little bobber." But <laughs> I'm but I'm enjoying life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm happy that you went back this year we were able to get back and be part of that we'll we'll talk about that a little bit uh, maybe maybe later on maybe we'll get into that we've already touched on that a little bit in that earlier episode but uh, remind people and tell me again what portions of the survey strata did you primarily survey over your years? started my career in southern manitoba on the prairies and then uh, uh, we tacked on we got we some more people retired and whatnot and we kind of doubled up on areas and, and i inherited Western Ontario, uh, while I was still doing the prairie. So that was my, other than when I banded back prior to the job with Art Brest and the guys up in the Boreal, uh, flying the Boreal, I, I got my feet wet doing uh, Western Ontario. And then uh, after a few years of that, up to northern Saskatchewan and northern Manitoba, spent most of my career there in the last 80 years or so, was uh, up in the Northwest Territories. 
Is there a favorite among those? Uh, yes, there is. I enjoyed some of the stuff we've talked about with yeah. with the uh, ability to uh, to uh, pop in at the outfitters the and whatnot. Yeah. Well, it, it was very remote, but yet there's enough infrastructure and enough that that there were more mom and pop camps and all this where we really sometimes are at a loss. Like, where are we going to? end up tonight because we had choices in the territories is so far flung and the outfitters tend to be the bigger uh really high-end places and uh so the the i just got to know a lot of people i was there the longest in northern saskatchewan and uh, just great people yeah and when you think about the fact that you're one of a small percentage of people worldwide that have seen that much of such a remote landscape and largely, un relatively speaking, untouched landscape, able to see it so many times and travel tens of thousands of miles across that landscape. I mean, that's got to be pretty cool to look back and say, I was able to do something that of I'm, I'm certain it's a fraction of 1% of people on this planet have been able to do. I know it would be. I mean, that's got to be pretty cool. I never got tired of just looking out the airplane window, looking at waterfowl. I mean, seeing the habitat and getting to see some of the major, you know, the, the really cool waterfowl production areas on this continent, whether it's the prairies. And then you get up in the north like we talked about uh, when we uh, – did the episode yeah, Lake, uh, from Fort, Fort Chippewa? Fort Chippewa right. with that Peace Delta. Peace Athabasca Delta. That's it. Right. Okay. So there's more. That one is a favorite, but the uh, the Saskatchewan River Delta at the Paw, Manitoba, the Mackenzie Delta at the Arctic Ocean, where the Mackenzie dumps in uh, between Anuvik and then Tuktoyaktuk right on the coast. But just to see all that and see it in different light and different years yeah. and, and all, and, and the ice up there this year was kind of of incredible yeah uh but um no it, it was it was a good ride it's one thing to visit the prairies there's grid roads one mile grid roads all over that landscape it's kind of all chopped up you know in terms of of that aspect of it and you can see a lot of it and of course a lot of it has changed there's tremendous agricultural conversion up there so so you can't really see what it might have been like pre-settlement but there are a lot of places in the boreal forest that are largely untouched in that regard right still and, still and you're able to see that that's that's got to be awesome. I'm really envious. And, and it's not like you're flying over it at 35,000 feet. You're <laughs> 100, 150 feet, and you're landing, and you're spending an evening in so many of these different locations. What was? What did you look forward to the most? What were you like? Could you you would see, I'm, I'm sure you saw a lot of unique types of wild animals, caught a lot of different types of fish. What did you look forward to the most whenever you were going up on those? I mean, you obviously, let's make no doubt, you had a job to do. Mm -hmm. That was first and foremost. You always did that. But you're also an outdoorsman. You love fish, wildlife, the habitats. What did you look forward to the most? And what were some of your favorite experiences in terms of seeing something that you never thought you would? Yeah. I got to say to people in those, in, in those environments, I mean, uh, the, the, we had, uh, back to banding, we, besides the surveys, we used the airplanes to, to get around and, uh, I uh, got to give a shout out for Jesse and Simone Clausen in Big River, Saskatchewan. Okay. Uh, they we I got hope they're listening. Yeah, we'll we'll make sure that they okay, get it. Yeah, good. But uh, anyway, uh, they the first year 
that I was banding there. We got we we had an incredibly uh, good day at Spiritwood, Saskatchewan, and I was working. I brought my crew back to Big River. They had come down and helped because we were just knocking it out on the out of the park on on the provincial bait pads band in Mowers. That's another story. But anyway, it was getting a little darkish, but Jesse, uh, a float plane pilot on uh, Delarond Lake, he saw us land, and he got in a pickup truck and his buddy, and I think they were maybe having a rye, and, and he says, let's go up there and see. <laughs> and I'll never forget. They didn't the f- know what y'all were doing there? No, no. Okay. He just saw an airplane oh, land on, quote, wow. his, his lake. Yeah. And I, I'll never forget the first thing. I was tying the tail and the first thing out of his mouth it's americans yet <laughs> he saw that n number on that airplane like who are you what are you guys doing and, and it was a little bit like don't you know it's kind of like civil twilight right now <laughs> anyway he close. said but he said you better come down to the house some four or five miles because we had a vehicle there uh at, at, at our camp where okay. we were staying. Anyway, we drive down to the house, and we've been good friends ever since. And uh, uh, Yeah. And, but he, the, the story with that is he had a trapper's cabin about 70 miles north of his home on the lake, and then way up in the far north, uh, just a few miles from the territory's line, um, he had another camp that he was involved in. So our joke was we could fly this whole survey out of Jesse's camps. But uh, we got to see him this year. Uh, Garrett and I stopped there on the way to the territories, and uh, they're, do- they're doing well. And uh, uh, just How many people do you have like that that you would sort of repeat stops? Because I, I suspect... Suspect there was a little bit of variation based on when you like the timing of the survey, how much you were able to do, or were you, or did you have like I don't know a dozen places that consistently you stopped at? No, it varied, and and it, be, it depended the year and how the ice broke, how how things broke up. the The difference between flying in the boreal and flying on the prairies is the prairie crews march to the beat of their air ground comparison oh, people because yeah. they have to coordinate. The good news in the north, we'd played a weather system. Let's use Laurent, Saskatchewan as an example. It's in the middle of the province. So if if the we- if there's a, a system coming in from the west and uh, uh, you, you're, you know, aware of that, you go east the day before it, get back, and then uh, let the system pass overnight, and then you go west the next day where the guys on the prairie is like, oh, we got to do this air ground because the ground crew is in that area and they can't move around like we do in the airplanes. So it was, it, it, uh, it, yeah, it, we, we had some discretion on how we flew the order. And when you're flying the boreal, you had to have a float plane, right? I mean, yeah. there was really no other option than that. That's the best option. Okay. But on the prairie cruise and some of those others where they have a lot of sort of terrestrial um, air, airports, are they, are they all uh, float planes? No, or not it, so much. Okay. Because the key down there, you got so many... Uh, Municipal airports, some of them are sod. Yeah. And uh, Phil Thorpe, one of my good friends that still 
flies yeah. that. He he's collecting just like we did in the bush with with the outfitters. He he he's got kind of a log of all the various small airstrips he's landed at in Saskatchewan. So he's flying a Kodiak on big wheels right now. So it's that's that's another aspect. The guys uh, that are working have just got back from mountain flying training. Uh, there's there's a lot there's, there's lots of diversity and I, I have to say it's it's you know safety first yep. and uh, they've got the equipment to do this job right yeah well and in this field in the field of wildlife management aerial surveys are the most dangerous part of it it's one of the reasons why this profession is one of the most dangerous out there you know and uh, among some of the things that we're familiar with is because of the risk that you take anytime you get up in the plane and you've done tens of hundreds of thousands of miles in that regard and um it's it's pretty yeah it's pretty incredible i I wish that i had the opportunity to experience all that you did so related to the fact that you've landed at all these different locations um municipal airports uh sod airport whatever the case may be and then um some of the um, some of the lakes where you've landed on you were telling me last night that there's some of these places where you get to know the air traffic control person, right? And so you swing by and you say hello to them. And tell me about some of that, some of the different, the people that you've met that that help you out with some of those logistics. You've talked about some up in the boreal where you're able to stay, but some of the other people, the fuel and all the type of coordination that has to occur with that, just some of those stories of your interaction with the people that make this possible. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, for the people uh, listening is uh, many of them may follow some of the Fish and Wildlife Service's um, web pages, but there is a, a page, and I don't have the address right here, but uh, that that tells uh, it's a blog, and I, I have to uh, mention what Walt Walt Rhodes. Uh, we were talking about um, you know some with at, at dinner last night with his buddies from South Carolina. Walt, Walt Walt's now out in Bend, Oregon, but he's part of his history. He's an outdoor writer, and we always love his blogs. And he started it out like uh, you know. His his first contact with ATC air traffic control in Lawrence, Saskatchewan was it's seven five four whatever he was flying. Um, all our, most of the airplanes have a three digit number, and it, it's the it, it's the seven hundred series. So a lot of people know who we are. But anyway, uh, uh, the two years of COVID, you know, there wasn't a survey, and Walt. Um, just nonchalantly, hey, Larange, it's just seven five four. We're we're uh, ten miles south, inbound landing, and uh, the guy came back, and this is all in the in the in the in the blog. Yeah, the guy came back and gave him, you know, like the winds are out of you know out of whichever direction in the altimeter setting. Walt, is that you? Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, there's a lot of stories like that. Yeah, oh, I got here. Here's a great one. We were sitting on the uh, ramp one, waiting to take off in Regina, Saskatchewan one time. And the, uh, the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, Caravan, was in line behind us for takeoff, and he uh, is pretty laid back in in, uh, in on the prairies there. Anyway, uh, when they cleared us to go or whatever, he picked up his up his mic and and said to the tower, he said, "What a harbinger of spring! The duck guys are back." 
<laughs> and uh, I never thought of that. But anyway, that we, we kind of enjoyed that. <laughs> That's funny. Now, so that that kind of brings me to another point, and I know you shared you shared at least one story about this with me just last night. You go to a lot of places, you see a lot of different people. A lot of these people you meet for the first time, they ask you what you're doing. Number one, especially when you're in Canada, this is a U.S. government plane in Canadian airspace. I mean, that's sort of a, that's a bit unusual. So there's got to be, you get a lot of questions about that. But then, you know, invariably it's like, what are you doing here? Tell me about what this is. What were some of the most interesting responses that you got whenever you told them that you're counting ducks? Yeah, yeah, but, but like, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> and 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 we we tell them like, hey, this is you know, and and first of all, you know, um, the sportsmen all understand this. We interface with a lot of guys getting on float planes to go up to the lodge, but but people out and about, you're counting, uh, you know, and uh, but uh, uh, I, I'll, I'll take it back down here to I think the story last night was here in the states okay. where where we'd be. You're somewhere and talking to pilots in the air. And what do you do? You're can't. Well, you know, they they. When we got into the turbine airplanes, uh, a lot of the guys said, "What are you guys doing with with this air?" Well, we're doing duck counts and whatnot, waterfowl surveys. Really? Like why? You know, and and so there's a, a lot of times this would be a younger crew member, right seat position, and, the, and the, the captain with more experience has been around in the charter world. He'd say, "Look, you're you're going to go to places like Stuttgart, Arkansas, and Eastern Maryland in your career because that's where he said ducks are a big deal." And the people listening to this podcast already know that oh, yeah. most of them. And uh, but but it's it, it, the story we were telling is. Look at the ramp in Stuttgart, Arkansas, the oh, parking yeah. area during the opening weekend, the duck season. It's who's who in aviation. The Gulf Streams, uh, you name it, is parked on at Stuttgart. And uh, so, in the in the uh, in the aviation world, the uh, crew members are uh, S, uh, Sierra Gulf Tango, Stuttgart, Arkansas. They all know where that is. Oh, really? What is it again? Uh, Sierra Golf Tango is the identifier for the Carl Humphrey Airport in Stuttgart, Arkansas. Um, Fred, we have a lot more to talk about because I, I, I still want to ask you about some of your most interesting observations, non-duck related, whenever you were up in the in the Northwest Territories or anywhere. And also want to talk to you about kind of your observations of how things have changed. What are some of the more notable things that you've observed? And then I also want to talk to you about some of your work down in Mexico. You flew a lot of surveys down there as well. And I know you have some stories there. And probably also, I just, you know, want to want to hear some of the, some of the like, um, most memorable, most scary, most uncertain, any of those types of things, you know, that we want to get into here on the next episode. But we'll close this one out and we'll have you we'll have you back. We'll resume here on our next episode and uh, talk more about all the great work that you've done as a pilot biologist for the service. And then, of course, everything else that, that all your other comrades, your, your colleagues, uh, pilot biologists have done. Thank you for all that, Fred. Thank you for being here on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Fred Rutger, retired pilot biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I uh, appreciate all that, all of his time through the years. We appreciate him sharing it here and sharing some of the stories of what that so unique position brings to this uh, brings to this profession. As always, we thank our producer Chris Isaac for the great job he does with these podcasts, and we thank you, the listener, for your time and spending it with us and for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.